0: Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. We are um, sort of in the middle of a series that never ends. What a series is, is where we take a particular subject, we talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it, and uh, then we eventually get tired of it or we think we've covered it and we move on to something else. And <clears throat> what we're doing is a series called Questioning God, where um, we, uh, we've we taken the five, and this is number four that we're on, we're taking the five biggest questions. I don't know if we'll ever get to number five. but We're taking the five biggest questions that people have regarding Christianity, regarding God, regarding the Bible and these questions become obstacles or uh, you know sort of hurdles that people have in order to step across the line of faith and become a Christian. There are things that you know I, I like Jesus alright or I believe in God but then I have certain questions. And uh, the question that we've been covering and we started last week Is a is a question that it's it's by far, and I mean by far, the biggest question that people today, anyway, and uh, you know times change, and something big questions that people had in the eighties that changes in the nineties, and but where we are in our culture right now, this is the number one question that people within the church are asking, and especially those that are outside of the church, and that is our main mission. If you're here and you consider yourself a Jesus follower, we say this over and over and over. Our main mission in life is to expand God's kingdom, is to share who Jesus is with the world. That's one reason we put this church together. And we say it's a church for people that don't like church. It's not that we don't like church, but there are so many people out there that uh, would consider themselves, themselves far from God. And they uh, have been involved in church. They've been heard at church. They've been uh, tried to go to church and they haven't been accepted, they haven't been welcomed. And so that's why we started this church. But the biggest question that they are asking is why is it that it seems to us that so many Christians are, and the term that they use would be homophobic. What is it with the uh, the subject of homosexuality where it seems that Christians make this such a big deal and it seems that they sort of... Um, it becomes sort of the hinge that everything else swings on. That if you, if you can't accept everybody, because you guys are telling us, hey, grace is for everyone. And then all of a sudden it comes to homosexuality and you say, oh, well, accept that. And, uh, it seems that the church has this deal where, um, we, we, we don't accept someone that considers themselves part of the LGBT community, someone that identifies as gay. They, uh, we say, love the sinner, love the sinner hate the sin, all these things. Why is, What is the deal with Christianity? Why are they like that? And what, what does God feel about that? So we started last week with that particular subject. And I just decided to sort of, because this question, this question has so much emotion... Uh, on, on all sides of it. And we're going to share in just a moment just like we did last week. There are about four different views concerning this issue or this subject. And there are, this seems to be, there's so much passion, so much emotion around this particular subject that I think it, it deserves almost a series within a series. I could answer the question quickly and we could move on but I think we would, some, most of us at least, would be left not completely understanding what God feels about it, how Jesus teaches us to respond, and how we as Jesus followers especially are supposed to uh, engage with that question and engage with those who are looking for a place to call home. They're looking for a place to pursue Jesus. They dearly, dearly want believe that there's more in life uh, than just this life. But uh, they either are someone that considers themselves gay Or they have an issue that if someone doesn't accept everyone, how could they really truly accept me? So we're going to take actually several weeks and talk about this issue. Now, um, if you have a question as we go along, if you have a question about what we're talking about, and I'm going to try to uh, be a little short with what I have to say this morning because you guys asked some great questions last... uh, It wasn't last week because we took off last week, but two weeks ago... You guys sent in, you texted in some great, great questions we just didn't have time to get to. uh, I'm going to do my best to answer those this morning to at least uh, talk about those. Because we want this to be a conversation. If you have a a question, you can send it in to 415-SB-ROCKS at any time. If we don't get to it today, we'll maybe get to it next week. But uh, it really helps me to see sort of where to guide the conversation because uh, and, that, and that's what we want it to be. We, uh, we don't want Stonebrook to be a place where we simply dispense information and say this is our policy, this is our stance, this is what we believe, therefore you have to line up or get out. It's something that we all need to engage in and, and learn together. It's the way that Jesus taught, actually. Jesus was uh, he was this kind of guy. In, in fact, there's an interesting word I was just reading it, uh, uh, yesterday. In, uh, in the book of Galatians... The Apostle Paul tells us as believers to walk by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. Those of you that enjoy such things, that Greek word there is peripateo, which, which simply means to walk. But uh, it's, I don't know how, much, how many of you are actually history buffs. Uh, there is a philosopher named Aristotle that had a school years and years ago called the Peripatetic School of Philosophy. And the, the reason, one reason it was called the peripatetic school is because peripatetic simply means to walk around. And uh, instead of having a classroom setting where he simply dispensed information, you know, that's sort of what we're used to in America. You go to class and you sit in rows and somebody up front tells you the information, you write it down, you regurgitate it on a test, they give you an A or an F and you're advanced to the next uh, grade or not. But uh, Jesus wasn't at all like that. He had this peripatetic style. People would ask Jesus questions... Or people would want to to know him and learn from him. And he would say, great, walk with me. He would constantly go up to people uh, like Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He went up to Matthew where he was doing his tax collecting. said, hey Matthew, uh, follow me. And Matthew left everything he uh, was doing. There was no qualifications. There was no application process. There was no interview to see, now what sins are you doing? What What things do you need to start doing or stop doing? There was no qualification to that that that's where i think we as the church have gotten it so wrong that um the answer if you can join us is yes just walk with us you want to know more about jesus just just walk with us as we go as we talk as we interact in community not just one person who knows everything trying to uh decide what everybody else has to think but jesus was constantly when someone asked him a question he would ask them a question and they had to engage and he, he he would interact with their thoughts as well. And so that's what we're trying to do. So if you have a question, you can send it in. If you missed last week, you can go to stonebrook.tv. I would recommend that you do that and sort of catch up with what we said last time. And so we'll review just real quickly and then we'll move on. We said this, um, that church should be the safest place in the world to talk about anything. Could you say anything with me? Anything. Say it one more time. Say it with feeling. Wow. Anything, including same-sex attraction, in church historically hasn't been a place where you can talk about anything. It's a place where you have to put on a mask. It's a place where if you believe something different than the crowd, you better not voice it because you're not going to be part of the crowd anymore and you're going to have to go somewhere else. But it's actually not at all the case here. And our goal with this is to become more and more like Jesus. That's what our goal is with this subject. And I'm sort of using this, this subject as a, as a jumping off point to, to discuss some deeper things. This, this particular issue of same-sex attraction, uh, gay marriage, however you want to, to qualify it, it, it reveals a deeper issue, a deeper misunderstanding of Jesus that I think that the church has. And our goal is to become committed followers of Jesus. So we want to be more like Him so that's what we're after with this subject. It's not simply to, well, where do you stand on the issue? It's another interesting thing if you watch Jesus. People were constantly trying to nail Jesus down as to what he believed. I don't know how much, how much time you've spent in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the religious people of the day, Jesus drove them nuts. They could not figure him out. They couldn't quantify him. They couldn't define him, put him in a box. Okay, is he with us or is he with them? Because I think you ought to be with us because we're the good guys and we're the ones that are keeping all the laws. We're doing all the things right. We're doing every single thing that God ever told us to do. Yet this guy comes along that says he's the son of God and he doesn't hang out with us. So they constantly ask him questions. What do you believe on this? Where do you stand on this? What is your position? What is your stance? We need a policy. What is your policy on this, Jesus? And he constantly eluded those questions. He didn't want to be defined. He didn't want to be nailed down because there was already a group of people. They were called the Pharisees. Anytime I say say the Pharisees, you need to do something to the order of... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that was really awful. It was just bad. But the Pharisees, were, were the, were, they were the good guys of the New Testament. They were doing everything the right way. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. You will never be... You can try as hard as you want to. You will never be as good as the Pharisees. You can't do it. There never has existed before or since a group of people that was more strict, that was more, um, that had more fidelity to what God actually said, the letter of the law, the rules, the requirements, the standards. They had the standards raised high. They took some of the standards in the Old Testament and made them even harder. And they weren't necessarily hypocritical about that. It wasn't that they were proclaiming you ought to do this. They did it. The Apostle Paul, uh talking about his life, the Apostle Paul was actually a Pharisee before he became a Jesus follower. He says, concerning the law or concerning the Bible, I was perfect. And see, here's here's the thing, and, and I'm getting a little bit out, out of order, but that's okay. And I said this last week that we are called Christians. We're not called Bibleans. Now I love the Bible. I, I've studied the Bible my entire life. I, it, it's just an amazing, amazing, amazing group of, of documents. It's something that I, I cherish very much. But we're not called followers of the Bible. We're called followers of Jesus. We're called Christians, not Bibleans. And this group of people that, uh, that during Jesus' time, the Pharisees, they kept the Bible perfectly. Yet Jesus says, you don't know me at all. You don't know God at all. You're not actually doing what God wants you to do by keeping all these standards of the Bible. And I think too many times the church, when it comes to issues, and they see this simply as an issue, and that's one reason we played this video, that when, when it hits close to home, when it becomes somebody that you know, it becomes more than an issue. It becomes Charlie. It becomes Susan. Instead of just the issue of same-sex attraction. It's actually a person. And that's one of the things that Jesus came to change the thinking of the people of his day and also us is that God is simply not interested in the standards. He's interested in the actual people. So uh, our goal with all this is to become more and more like Jesus. So um, I want to go through what I would consider four different um, views concerning what homosexuality is. And uh, Greg, I can't even see what the next slide is. I wonder why that is. Oh, that's what it is? (laughs) That's why. Before I get to that, we're going to talk about my son Caleb, looks like. This is my son Caleb when he was much younger than he is now. And show the next one. This is my daughter Kristen. Um, Just look at that smile. I, I, I dropped Kristen off in Springfield this Friday... She's spread her wings. She has a job in Springfield. She's graduated from college. She no longer lives in my home. Dropped her off at her own apartment. The next morning, by the way, I knew she would text us the next morning. The first night in her apartment, we dropped her off, we went home, we had no contact with her. I knew the next morning, at some point, we'll get a text from Kristen. I expect something like, I was so scared, I want to come home and be your baby girl the rest of my life. Or... Oh my gosh, I love being on my own. But the first text we got from her, this is her first text as official adult in her own home. Her first text was, Beef is expensive. <laughs> we were like, Yeah, tell us about it. We're glad you're eating your own beef and not mine anymore. That's where I sort of I was like, I'm okay with her being gone. She's out buying her own groceries with her own money. God is good. So, But this is Kristen... When uh, she was a very young girl, and uh, she decided she wanted to play t-ball. Any parents ever been involved with t-ball at all? Isn't that like of the devil or something? What is that? So as a dad, as a dad that was a sports guy when I was in in uh, in uh, high school, several, several years ago, several, several pounds ago, I was an athlete, and so this she's my firstborn. And this is great. She wants to be involved in sports. And so I have all kinds of ideas about what t-ball is going to look like. This is going to be great. I'm going to help coach. I'll see the first practice. We'll get them out there. We'll be working on turn and double plays. We'll work on the hit and run. Kristen, of course, she'll play shortstop, I know. I'll teach her. Okay, there's a person on third, Kristen. That ball comes to you. You got to look back the person at third. Get them back there. Then you go to first. Then you go around the horn. We'll work on that. It'll be great. This is going to be exciting. You parents that have been involved with kids in T-ball know that that was stupid. Because your left fielder is out chasing butterflies. The second baseman has gone to sleep on the base. And all of them just run around like an amoeba. It's, it's also it's very similar to soccer. When you this age, she also played soccer. She still to this day knows nothing about soccer. I called it amoeba ball. Because when, you know, the ball goes around. Same thing happens in t ball. Wherever the ball is, that's where they all go. And the other person can hit the ball to the pitcher. And they can score a home run because all the team is fighting over who's the ball, has the ball, or who has the prettiest butterfly. And there's just nothing is going on. And so, quickly, quickly, I learned a very important principle that I think the church actually needs to learn. I learned real quickly that the rules of T ball, the standards of what baseball is supposed to be, like just basic things like when you hit the ball, run to first base. To them, just run. <laughs> it doesn't matter where. Run to third base. Run to second base. Run over and give your dad a high five. It really doesn't matter where you run, just as long as you're running. The rules immediately went out the window. And eventually I came to see, number one, two couple of things, that my dreams of a full-ride scholarship in athletics was, was just gone. There would have to be some other way that we provide for a college education because sports is not going to be it. But But that the most important thing was not the rules, but was that face right there. You see the smile on that face? That's the way Kristen lived her life, by the way. She's just excited about breathing. And the fact that, look, I have a glove. I don't know what to do with it. It's on her left hand. The girl is (laughs) left-handed. I don't know what's going on, but she's so happy that she gets to wear a uniform and take a picture with her t-ball outfit. And I came to the point where that is more important than the rules at this particular moment. Now, if she's going to continue on and become a nationally known softball player someday, we'll eventually maybe talk about the rules somewhere down the road, but we'll never get to talk about the rules if I make it about the rules right now. I'm going to have to make it about, we're just glad that you're here with us, here, have a little drink thing with the straw in it and a cookie, which was the thing that they were all after anyway. They didn't care. And we didn't keep score. What is with that? I couldn't believe it. I kept score, by the way. I always told my kids afterwards, I know that they said, you know, nobody won or lost, but you lost. <laughs> okay? And we're going to have to work on that. No. So... And here's the thing about Jesus that we need to learn, and people are sometimes shocked about this. A- and they push back against this. I push back against this. I was raised in church. I am, hello, my name is Mark and I'm a recovering Pharisee. I am a person that was all about the rules, all about the standards, all about the Bible. I've read the Bible many times. I can quote it. I know what the, what the requirements are, and I've always done my best to keep the requirements. And the thing is, it can become a, a pride issue. To where, that's how we determine if we're doing good or not. That's how we determine if we're separate or not. That's how we determine if I'm better than you or not. I'm keeping these standards, you're not. Therefore, I'm closer to God. Therefore, God loves me more. Even though we wouldn't say that out loud, it's sort of a, a feeling that comes, that, that comes to us. But Jesus, Jesus put relationships before rules. This drove the Pharisees, drove the religious people of the day crazy. He put people before principles. And he put love before law, relationships before rules, people before principles, love before law. If you could remember those three things and and actually put those into practice in our lives, I think it would change the way that we live and we interact with God, and it would certainly change the way that people see Jesus, because the way that people are going to see Jesus is through our lives. Now, as I said, there's basically four different views I believe that people have when it comes to homosexuality, and I just want to review these real quickly. Uh, the first group of people would say homosexuality is a sin and you cannot be accepted by God as long as you embrace homosexuality in any way. If you consider yourself gay, that means that you are in sin. If you want to be accepted by God, you'll have to not be gay anymore. Here's the policy. If you meet the policy, you can be part of us. If not, then uh, you'll have to change or, or not, be, not be included. A second view of that, and I want to try to represent these all as faithfully as I can. And here's the thing. Here's the cool, cool thing about Stonebrook. I love you guys, by the way. I love that I go to this church. If I wasn't pastor of this church, I would still go to church here. Uh, because we have such a diverse group of people. All four views are held by different people in this particular church. All four at the same time. Yet we still go to church. Being gay is not in itself a sin. In other words, if you identify as gay, it's simply you're saying this is the direction of my desire. This is the way uh, I am oriented as far as what I desire sexually. However, all homosexual acts are sinful. In other words, if you act upon that desire, then at that time you are entering into a sinful situation. A third view would be that homosexual activity outside of a committed monogamous relationship is forbidden there are those that look at the various scriptures and there are about six we'll eventually probably look at those actual scriptures but there are about six different scriptures that address uh homosexual activity and they would say that at the time that the the bible the various books of the bible were written that there was not a a, a defining way to to say uh, people that were same-sex attracted that were living in a monogamous committed relationship that the Bible is simply condemning these relationships. And, and part of this is a very true thing that at the time, for example, in the Roman culture, there was a patron-client relationships. There was relationships within the military when they conquered a nation where homosexual acts were an act of, of dominating another person. So they, they would say, someone that holds this view would say, that those particular things are being condemned by the Bible. But because culture did not have a way to say... Well, if you are committed in a relationship, and because God is after committed relationships, then that would be okay. The Bible doesn't condemn that in itself. And then there's a fourth view that would say homosexuality is not a sin. I don't even know why we're talking about this. This is an antiquated notion. We live in, in 20. Uh, what do we live in? 2015. <laughs> and. Um, doesn't it make you confident in me as a speaker? He knows what year we are. It's so exciting. But uh, because we live in 2015, that we're in an enlightened uh, state now, that it's simply something that should uh, be erased. It's something that was maybe fitting back then, but it's no longer fitting now. And we said this, that there will never be theological theological consensus. Even among uh, people that would consider, would identify with LGBT community, uh, some that would... I know within our body there would be people that identify themselves as gay, as gay that, would, uh, that would hold at least three of the four of these views. So there would never be theological consensus. So the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do when people don't agree? Do we simply say, here's the policy? Here's what our standard is, you must obey it. Or is there room for grace from both both sides. I don't know we're going to talk about it. And here's a big statement that we said. Acceptance is not agreement. The church historically wants to, to marry up acceptance and agreement to where if you're going to be accepted by us, you have to agree with what we say. If we don't agree with you, we're going to keep you at least at arm's length until you line up with whatever our theology or whatever our position, our stance is. And uh, it's something that when Jesus came, this was a big thing that he eradicated. It's what drove the religious people crazy is that he seemed to be condoning sin. And this is a big, big deal. This is where churches and Christians in general really have a hard time discussing something where they have very, very firm feelings one way or the other concerning what God wants. They're afraid that if I associate, if I actually become friends with if I interact, if I have conversations with someone, and especially when it comes to the idea of gay, then if I have become friends with people that I identify as gay, if I have conversations, if I seem to accept them, then am I condoning something that I don't believe in? Jesus did not have a problem with guilt by association. In fact, it was one of the biggest uh, it was one of the biggest criticisms that the religious people of the day had of Jesus. They just didn't say He was friendly with sinners. They didn't say, well, He's nice to sinners. They said He is a friend of them, and it went even further than that. See, a lot of people don't even know this. They didn't just say Jesus is friendly with sinners. He was so one of them that they called Him a glutton and a sinner and demon-possessed. The religious people called the Son of God And this is where, you know, as we as Christians, from time to time, I don't know if you do this, I sort of I want to analyze my life. Am I living like Jesus? Are people thinking that I'm like Jesus at all? What about my life? We always do the thing. You know, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And people always think, well, what would that evidence be? It might be that I read my Bible every day, or I pray, or I attend church every single week, or I give a certain amount of money. What would that evidence be? Well, the evidence that they used against Jesus for being like Jesus was they called him a glutton and a sinner and a friend of tax collectors. Tax collectors was the lowest of the low in that particular day. So if you want to evaluate your life and say, you know, am I acting like Jesus? Is anybody thinking that you're just a little bit hanging out too much with the wrong crowd? Are people thinking that you are actually have stepped over the line and you're no longer a good Bible-believing, God-fearing Scripture-toting Christian and you're, you're maybe hanging out a little too much with people that I don't think they really love God? If people are starting to say that about you, inside go, yippee. Let's try that together. Very nice. Don't you feel silly doing things like this in church? But um, here's, here's a prayer. and I wanted to get this. And I'm trying to hurry as much as I can. Jesus prayed this prayer for us as a church. This is right before he went to the cross. This is at the Last Supper. He took time and he's talking with the, the disciples and he prayed this prayer. And at the end of his prayer he said this. This is the last thing on Jesus' mind. One of his last recorded words before he heads off to his uh, destiny of bearing the sins of the world. He says, I'm praying, he's talking to God, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. This is Jesus praying for us. We are the people that have believed in him through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. He goes on and he prays this, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus prayed because he wanted the world to know. It's the big thing with Jesus. Jesus is so, so concerned that there are tens of thousands of people in this county that do not know him. His concern is that they would know that He has been sent for them, and that He, that God loves them just as much as He loves Jesus. That's a hard thing for us Christians to, to accept, that those that aren't here this morning, those that we would consider far from God, the thing that Jesus is praying that we would get is that we would be so unified, not divided, Not squabbling, not, uh, as we said last week, when when it comes to these various positions and issues uh, on what does the Bible say and what does God want, we simply retreat to our various corners and we, we throw scripture bombs at each other and we're hoping that eventually the person will come out with a white flag and say, okay, okay, you've got six scriptures, I only have five. You win. I'm coming over to your side. Stop shooting. I'm coming over to your side. That's not what Jesus prayed. He wants us to be so unified that the world, because the world is used to division, the world is used to turning on the news and the Democrats are shooting at the Republicans and the Republicans are shooting at the Democrats. And hasn't that worked so well that they just, instead of working together and trying to find common ground, they just shoot at each other. That's working so wonderful for our country that maybe we, the church, should model after that. No. The world is used to that. What they need to find is a church that says, we don't agree with everything that you're doing. We don't agree with everything we're doing. (laughs) I don't agree with everything I do. I disagree with the the way that I think and do things. Why are we so hung up? Because I don't agree with something you're doing. Why don't you just walk with this? Why don't you come here? Because we are so unified. We have people here that believe all kinds of different things, and we're all messed up in some sort of way. We're all in progress. We're all in process. None of us are there. You're probably further down the road in some things that we are and maybe we're further down the road in some things that you are. But Jesus said, if the world can see that, they will somehow know that I've been sent and they'll somehow know that God loves them. They'll come in the midst of you and they'll sense that there's something different here. There's some some sort of acceptance here. I just want to stay here. I don't know if I buy what the fat guy on the stage is talking about yet, but I just want to be here. There's just something different. Now, oh, I hope I can get to all this. I, I, I'll, I'll try to, I'm, I'm going to try to talk faster now. Jesus was, was uh, many times, like I said, they were coming to Jesus and they would ask him certain questions. And this is an instance where they asked Jesus a question. I'll just go to Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees, those are the religious people, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, other group of religious people, see, it's always been that way. You know, we, we talk about, well, you got the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Northern Baptists and the Western Baptists and the just kind of Baptists and the really, really Baptists. And there's all these different groups. There's always, it's always been that way. That's what religion always does. That's when, when people start to say, well, we believe this, but we don't believe that, so we can't hang out with you. We're going to go over here with a group of people that just believe like us. It's always been that way. The Pharisees heard that he had silenced Jesus, the Sadducees, with his reply. They met together to question him again. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Here's the question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment? The most important. What's number one in the law of Moses? Now, this teacher of the law, he's an expert. He knows that there are approximately 613 different commandments, different standards. It's not just the big 10. There's a whole bunch of them. And if he can get Jesus to sort of say what his pet one is, then he can argue, oh, you think that's the most important? Well, I think this is the most important. Now Jesus is completely off his mission, and he's drawn into this theological argument, and the people in the crowd will be divided, and they won't follow him anymore. They're asking Jesus, what's the most important? So his answer is extremely telling. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. How many of you would agree that it is most important to love God? To have a relationship with God? That would be number one. Just if you can agree with that, just raise your hand. But here Jesus does something, and I don't think I've ever gotten this uh, my entire life. I've always read it. I'm like most people, you read certain things and you just never, it just never clicks with you. Then he says this next thing. And this just really, this really messes with my brain. He said in verse 39, Oh, but a second is, watch those next two words? Now this is really sort of troublesome to me. Because, wait a minute, Jesus, I thought you said this one was the first and the greatest. It's like, what is the best, it's something that I, being the uh, sort of, I don't, there's no other word besides, but just to say, ain't all retentive. You know what I'm saying? OCD person that I am. When people say, what is the, who is the best at something? And they give like three people. Oh, you didn't understand the question. I ask who's the best. You can't have three best. It just has to be one best. So Jesus says this, this first one, you got to love God. You got to do what God says. You have a relationship with Him. But Jesus introduces this saying, uh, no, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God is the most important, but the second one is equally important. Now let me ask you a question. Just be honest. If I would have asked you, before this message, just see you on the street, see you at McDonald's, Walmart, whatever, and I say, I just want to ask you a theological question because that's just the way I roll. Is it more important to be right with God or right with this person at work that you really can't stand that does things that are opposed to God is, there, is it more important for you to love God or love them? what would you have said? how many of you would have said you know if it comes down to it it's more important for me to love God raise your hand that's what I would say I gotta, I gotta stick with God here I mean you know cause cause He's God <laughs> That's just, you know, you have to do what God says. He's in charge. He's the boss. And it's the first greatest commandment. But Jesus said, a second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on and he makes this statement. The entire law. Now, the entire law at their time, the way he would say it if he was here today, would be the entire Bible. And all the demands of the prophets. In other words, every demand, every requirement, every scripture that you can come up with, are based on these two commandments. In other words, what Jesus has done is He has erased the Bible and says, do these two things and you got that all the rest. You don't need to do that if you're doing this. But He says they're equally important. Now, I have some some drawings you can put up there because here's the two commandments. Love God, love people. That's what it boils down to. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the most important thing. But now, and I had Joe make me a little, uh, put up the next slide there, make me a little demonstration. There at the front, that's me. That's back when I was in shape and working out. But now here's the way I've always viewed this, is I have me here. Do you see the resemblance? There I am. It looks just like me. And I, as I'm going along, I come up to love God first, then love people. First commandment, second commandment. Love God, love people, but actually the way Jesus is saying it is that I am to live in this tension, and here is why. This is to me is the answer of why are Christians have so hard of time with with people that would say that they are gay, is because they feel that number one that they believe that that is a sin. Of the four different views that we said, those that would choose a view that says. I believe it's a sin. I believe you need to stop that. You can't be like God and, and, and identify yourself as gay. They would think that I, it's more important for me to stick with God. But Jesus comes along and says it's not. This is one of the radical, scandalous things. The message that Jesus came to bring was, yeah, you Pharisees are keeping everything that God said to do. You're doing it perfectly. But you're missing the point you're missing the reason you love God, but you live in this tension of yes, I love God. Oh, but I have to love people. Now, I'm just going to have to forget the questions. Maybe second service. This is what I'm, I've done this occasionally, where I have too much to say, so I'll say something else. The second service to get it all in. I mean, if you want to stay, you're welcome. There's donuts for everybody. But um, here is a problem I, I begin to have as I, I begin to see this this week. I looked over at the book of Galatians. Jesus has basically said, take the whole Bible, you hang it on, if you'll love God and love people, you don't have to worry about it. Now, am I obeying that particularly right? No, love God, love people. Just love them, no matter what they're doing, no matter what you believe about them, no matter how different than they are. In fact, this is why it's such a hard concept, and I, I thought i maybe just talk about this next week, but let's talk just a little bit about it now. God, all through the Old Testament, showed that He was not extremely concerned with simply doing all the commands. For example, how many of you are guys here and you're married? Let me see, dudes with wives. Cool. How many wives do you have? Let me see. How many? How many? All of you? You just have one? Don't you know in the Bible that they had more than one? One? Now, see, I know know you guys have your wives right next to you. Church is a dangerous place, by the way. How many of you guys have ever thought, I might like to have six? See, you are scared to raise your hand. How many of you guys that have one have ever thought, I'd like to have zero? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Don't answer that question. Don't answer that question. But here's here's a question when I'm talking with people that are atheists or people that are skeptics according to the Bible and you begin to tell them what Scripture says and they say, oh yeah, Scripture talks about you can have more than one wife. Why don't you guys do that? And you don't have an answer. You don't want anybody to ask that question at work because you're going to go, I don't know, don't ask me hard questions, let's go back to work. But in the Old Testament, guys, David See, I can make a case. I can preach this. I can show you Scripture. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. David saw a pretty woman. The next thing you know, there's a wedding. The other wives just had to move over. He, he, I don't know how he kept up with all their names. I think they just wore like a number, like a lanyard. Uh, bring in number thir- thirty-five. No, thir- 36. Yeah. You. Come on, you. I don't know what your name is. But he had multiple wives. Why is that okay? Anybody? Why is that okay? It's not okay. Aren't you glad? Some of you were like, oh, this Stonebrook thing. This is the last straw. He wants me to have <laughs> six wives. I'm leaving. I was just as soon as, honey, we're leaving after this. Don't listen to him. No. Here's the thing in the culture, when God began to introduce himself to the people of Israel, their culture was you could have multiple wives. Also, because of the culture, the wives were not able to have the education that the men had. They did not have the uh, employment opportunities. You know, still today, the women many times don't have the employment opportunities that men have. So God accommodated something that was not his ideal. He accommodated something that he actually didn't want and said, Okay, okay. If I come along and say, hey, dudes, you got to you got to get rid of these 37. You can only have one. They would say, are you crazy? I can't do that. And they would reject him, and he would lose his opportunity for them to walk with him and learn more about him. So he said, okay, fine. You can have as many wives as you can take care of, but you're going to have to treat them right. That's why he put in a law that says if you're going to divorce one of your wives... You can't just throw her out in the street. You have to go through a process so she can have something in her hand to take away that says, He just threw me out. I didn't commit adultery or anything. I have a piece of paper that says I'm divorced so she can get married to somebody else and be taken care of. It was God loving people over His standard because His standard from the beginning was one guy, one girl. That's it. None of this five or six guys. Come on now he accommodated them. For example, is it how many of you think it's okay to have slaves? The Bible, Bible's okay with it. See this is where the world laughs at us when we start to say, "Oh, you can't be with us because the scripture says this." And they laugh and say, "Yeah, the scripture says, in fact, there's a great article that I have called Why can't I own a Canadian And it lists all the various things that the Old Testament says we can do, including, and I always say this to Rob, our children's pastor, because he's Canadian. Why can't I own a Canadian? I want to own a Canadian. The Bible says I can own a Canadian. But do you know, God doesn't want me to own a Canadian. But when he came across these people, they already had a culture where slaves were involved in the culture. And instead of completely breaking relationship with them, he said, okay, if you're going to have slaves... Every seven years, you have to give them the entire year off. Every 50th year, all the slaves, you have to turn them loose. You have to treat them right. You can't beat them. You can't. And we in this, in this modern day are going, are you crazy? (laughs) You can't have slaves. But eventually, as he kept them close, eventually as he loved them, eventually as they got to know him, in every culture, in every country, in every in every citizenship where Christianity takes hold, eventually the Jesus people go, wait a minute, I own a human being. There's something wrong about that. Let's don't do that. As the people are loved, God disregarded His standard and He accommodated where they were and loved them anyway. That's the pattern that Jesus is trying to To show as he comes to the to the world, the whole law can be summed up. We'll we'll end with um, go go to those last two slides where it says what does the Bible require, and we're going to end. I'm sorry, come back next service even if you want to. We'll talk some more about this. Christians in general are are asking the question, what does the Bible require? What is the standard? When people talk about any issue, especially a hot button issue like, can a person be gay and be a Christian? Can, can a person, if they want to get married to the same sex, can they do that? We as Christians constantly go to the, what does the Bible require? What is the standard? Let's look it up in the manual. But actually the question that Jesus said we should be asking is, what does love require? The greatest commandment is to love God. The second one is equally as important. You need to ask, what does love require? And as I may get to it next service, we'll actually find out that all through the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, they actually elevated that to the place that the way you could tell, the way you could tell if a person actually loved God is how they treated people. That became the gold standard. That became the litmus test. John said, if you can't love people who you can see, don't be trying to tell me you can love God who you can't see. It's real easy to sit in church and say I'm keeping the requirements but when you begin to interact with someone that disagrees with you the New Testament says that's where the rubber meets the road and that's how we can tell if you actually love God. What does love require? So I'm going to pray for us to get us out of here. Hopefully you send in even more questions that we didn't get to answer and we'll eventually get to them but uh, Father I thank you so much for, for a place called church. Uh, hopefully sir we're getting a little closer to what you envisioned. Help us, Lord, to be a group of people that just are so, so crazy about you that we want people to be as close to you as they possibly can. Help us to be people that, instead of just trying to keep, pray more, read our Bible more, which I know we all need to do, sir, but that we will look around when we're at Walmart, look around when we're driving down the street and people cut us off and they're driving too slow, and we begin to think What would love require in this situation? What can I do to bring them closer to Jesus? No matter what they believe, no matter what I believe. It may never mesh. It may never come together, sir. But may we live in unity so the world will know that you love them as much as you love Jesus himself. Help us to do that, sir. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys, for uh, being involved in this conversation. We'll hit it up again next week. Have a great week. We'll see you then.